Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss the presidential transition, the negotiations over the COVID-19 response, and the ongoing impact of the pandemic on the economy with Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Kyle. How was your Thanksgiving? Oh, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, uh, we have two adult children in the area, and we all got together. We had a great time. Yeah, that's nice. I was lucky enough to uh, ensure that I was able to, you know, take all the precautions, quarantine, and then get up to my parents' house to enjoy some turkey and some football, despite only having two games, but still, still a good, good time. <laughs> wonderful. So let's get right into things. What do appointments say about the incoming Biden administration, and what his economic goals might be for the for the next four years? I always worry a little bit about reading too much into the, the appointments. Um, I've noticed, for example, in talking with uh, diplomats uh, uh, in the U.S. from other countries, they, they read an enormous amount into every single appointment. Uh, I, I think the, the right way to think about uh, his economic team is uh, he wanted an experienced team. Uh, everyone there has done some crisis fighting in, the, in their uh, recent past, in the past decade. And so... That, that's the preeminent um, characteristic. Uh, what they will do depends on the president, and it's ultimately his agenda that dictates their actions. I know a lot, a lot of people have speculated that these appointments signal a return to the Obama-era economic policies, particularly in regard to you know, higher taxes, more regulation. What do you make of this criticism? Does it have a merit? His campaign proposals promised higher taxes, uh, you know, about $2.8 trillion over the next 10 years. If he's going to do climate as his top priority, which is what he has said, and he's not going to propose a carbon tax, then we're going to have some regulations. Uh, so I think on the merits, that's in the future, and it has nothing to do with these appointments. Um, the, the appointments, as I think we should suggest, is that, uh, number one, they're experienced. Number two, they're, they're good economists and or policy analysts. They will recognize that this recession is completely different in its uh, conception and its uh, dynamics than was the Great Recession and, and, and financial crisis. So they're going to have to treat this one differently. So I, I don't think the fact that they had that history dictates anything about what they do right now. They'll be judged now by what they do now, and they have to do different things because it's a different recession. On that topic, do you think there are aspects of how the Obama administration worked to address that 2008 financial crisis that suggests, you know, maybe some ways that they might tackle this um, that that will help the economy? I think they have um, uh, one piece in common, which is the the need for the Fed to intervene in financial markets. The Fed did that. That's now in the rearview mirror, and financial markets are working very well. They do not have to do further repairs as they did then with Dodd-Frank and, and the legislative efforts and then implementing that, which was a big regulatory push. So that's off the table. They don't really need to worry about that piece, in my view. They have um, taking care of the, the health of the recovery and have, making it as speedy as possible. That's a shared um, phenomenon. And they have the new thing, which is the public health crisis. Now, obviously, they're all interrelated. And so they're trying to figure out how to weave through this in an effective fashion. Yeah. On the topic of President-elect Biden's uh, tax tax hikes that he talked about during his campaign proposals to increase the uh, corporate tax rate specifically. Um, I saw you on CNN uh, the other day, by the way, great appearance, uh, where you discussed this proposal. Can you walk us through your criticism of this idea? I don't think it's a good idea in general. 
And uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea right now, especially. Um, in general, the idea is raise the, the corporate rate from 21% to 28%. In doing so, we would move the United States from basically the middle of the developed country pack to pretty much at the back. And if other countries continue to lower their rates, we will, will we fall out of uh, line yet again. The fact that we were far out of alignment um, was, in fact, the problem that led every year U.S. firms to move their headquarters abroad. And we had this ongoing issue of losing U.S. firms. The moment the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed, that stopped. We haven't heard that once in, in the uh, three years since. So we solved that problem, and they're now threatening to somewhat, you know, sort of in a self-inflicted way, start it over again. I think that's a bad idea. It is really bad to do it now. Uh, there's been some very um, uh, quite ingenious um, uh, work done by Christine Romer and her husband, David Romer. Uh, Christine's the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. They went back and they looked at the policy record on, on tax hikes and tried to distinguish between those things that had to happen, like Social Security had to get fixed, you raise the tax, versus those things which were utterly discretionary. We just want to have higher taxes on, on some people. This would be an utterly discretionary tax move. They find that utterly discretionary tax moves have big impacts on the economy. You raise um, taxes by one percentage point of GDP, you, you impact GDP by three percentage points, ultimately. So to do this now and, and put a big negative impact on the economy and trying to dig out of a hole as deep as we're in, I think is incredibly unwise. And my hope is that when they sit and sort of work through what they plan to do in the first part of 2021, they, they, they take that right off the list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously, you've been following economic policy for a long time. What about Congress? How do they factor into this? Do you think this kind of proposal would even make it through Congress? Is this something we should be looking at? Well, I mean, the, the first and most obvious point is we don't know what Congress is yet. And so the Georgia runoffs have a huge impact on all of this. If, in fact, you can get uh, to 50-50 and have Harris as the tie-breaking vote for the, the Biden administration, then your chances of getting things through Congress are completely different than if you have to find those things that will satisfy the caucus in the House, uh, driven by the progressive left, and and the, the Senate, where Republicans would have control. So I think you can get things through, but you won't get through a uh, Republican Senate, a $2 trillion tax increase in, in the spring of 2021. I just don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a, a lot of the transition stuff right now is still in wait and see mode, still trying to figure out the makeup of Congress, still trying to figure out what sort of particular priorities the administration will actually have going forward. Yes, it was certainly true during the campaign. I appreciate the fact they had you know, a website full of different proposals on you know, lowering the Medicare eligibility age, public options, climate change, clean energy initiative, um, immigration. But they didn't display any sense of priorities, like this is the most important, we're going to do it first. We now have to find that out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let's switch to uh, the negotiations over COVID-19 relief. This week, we did see a restart of more negotiations uh, for another relief package. The bipartisan working group released their package. Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell uh, released his proposal. Secretary Mnuchin and Speaker Pelosi have started talks again. Where are these negotiations? Are we still looking at the same issues that we're, that that you know we've been looking at this entire time since the since the summer? So I think the the issues remain the same. Uh, we we have you know do we want to extend UI? Do we want to include a federal bonus in it? Uh, what what's going to be the role of uh, direct checks to individuals? Will we have uh, more money for schools, states and state and local governments? 
Will there be liability protection for businesses? You know, we've been through all of these discussions a, a number of times. I, I credit the Biden team uh, with restarting the talks. I mean, it, there was a very public push by the, the Biden economic team to say, look, we need something for the economy now. Now is what matters, not later and bigger. But even if you don't get can't get what you want, we should we should get something now. That gave Pelosi and Schumer the air cover to move off their position where it had to be the the three trillion dollar heroes bill or nothing else, and that allowed the the negotiations to genuinely restart the bipartisan effort. They just aligned themselves with, it. so they've moved from three to under a trillion. That's a that's a big move, and what I think remains uh, the wild cards at the moment are number one. Uh, what will President Trump sign? Mitch McConnell said this very clearly. He said, I'm not going to have vote on a bill that the president won't sign. So we need to find out what that is. Um, I don't know if he's called you and told you, but I don't know. Um, we will find out uh, in due course, I assume. <clears throat> and I, I'm assuming uh, that all of these calculations are, are influenced by the Georgia runoff, that it will be unlikely Republicans would vote on a $3 trillion package right before the, the voters go to the polls uh, and, and basically have the opportunity to cast judgment on the Republican Party by by voting against uh, the candidates there. So, you know, I think that that makes it harder because, you know, McConnell and the Republicans don't want to get too far out over their skis. They've been at 500. Do they go to six, go to seven? I don't see them going to nine. We'll see. I think it would be desirable to, to do something. As we've discussed, I'm not in the we're doomed to have a double dip camp. I, I think that's too negative. But th there is the risk of downside um, uh, fall off. And so taking insurance against that risk makes sense. It's also true that we have 11 million people who are long-term unemployed, gotten half of the folks who lost their jobs back to work, but the other half are out there. And we ought to worry about their welfare. And so, so doing something that you know might not be everything everyone dreamed, but gets that help, I think is important. I know I probably might be a little overly optimistic here, but it does seem we're more likely to get some sort of a deal before the next Congress and president are sworn in at this point. You know, I saw a couple of statements last week, them backing off that hardline position. Where, what, what are the chances that we get another deal before the next Congress and the president are sworn in office? I, I still think they're less than 50, 50, maybe 30, 35, a third chance, something like that. They, they've gone up. There's no question. And hopefully they'll go up further, but you know, you, you can um, lose a lot of money betting on the Senate getting something done. And so I, I take that caution all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my next question was on the impact of President-elect Biden on these negotiations and President Trump on these negotiations. It seems like both are having a large impact on this on these negotiations based off of what you said before. Yeah, certainly. I, I think, you know, the the, the call by the, the Biden advisors to get something done, the simultaneous release of a, a letter signed by 100 prominent liberal economists saying, got to get these checks out right now. That looked like a very concerted effort on their part, big impact. Trump's uh, impact is harder to judge. Um, presumably it, it's going through Stephen Mnuchin and he's involved in the negotiations, but but it's publicly, there, there are no fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Biden, it seems like, or President-elect Biden, they seems like, um, their position is that let's get something done now, but we're still going to have to do something later. And that's sort of setting up, you know, the bigger package that might be coming once we know what the new Congress looks like and when President Biden gets into office. Yeah, I mean, Austin Goolsby, a former chairman of the CEA under uh, President Obama and uh, someone who I think 
is probably careful to, to stay in line with where the Biden administration wants to be, has said very clearly on a number of occasions, if you can only get half a loaf, get, a, get half a loaf, but then we'll get the other half later. And so mm-hmm. that's the plan. Got it. All right. So finally, uh, let's talk about the latest reports on the impact of the pandemic. On Monday, you wrote in your dish column about the rise in COVID-19 and concern about a double dip recession. Can you walk us through your analysis in that piece and that answer the basic question, are we at risk of a double dip recession this winter? Uh, of course we are at risk. And I and the real question is the virus. It's This has all been driven by the virus and we're once again seeing increasing caseloads, increasing hospitalizations. And I, I think that most policymakers, whether they're at the federal level or governors, um, mayors, have learned to be quite resistant to the idea of going for early lockdowns. That was incredibly costly uh, for the U.S. And so they are trying to see if they can manage with social distancing, masks, calls for the public to, to be careful and not have the hospital systems get overwhelmed. And, and that's the key test on the public health front. If, you're, if you face the hospital systems, the healthcare delivery in general getting overwhelmed, you will have to take physical lockdown measures to, to enforce that. So trying to avoid that that's probably the biggest risk of a downside. If you got a widespread physical stay-at-home order, that has a huge impact on the economy. If we avoid that, then um, there's a good chance the interference will will slow growth. There's no question, but we could we could get through it with, without getting into negative territory. So far, the the high frequency data, the, the things you get, the the retail sales, you know, the sort of daily credit card usage things. Point to a, a picture where the, the economy is hanging in there. It's not great, but it's not bad. And we got, for example, this morning, uh, a report from the uh, ISM, the supply management folks, that um, November employment in the service sector, which is the, the, a much bigger part of the, the employment picture in the US than anything else, it was better in November than October. So that's going the right way. That's good news. We will get a report on tomorrow on, uh, on employment in uh, November from the Department of Labor. And we'll try to figure out how we're doing. And as I wrote, that one's going to be hard to interpret because typically uh, in November, uh, all the retail firms are are adding employment to the holiday season. You know, people are wrap packages, check people out, all that. They're not this year. So when you when you use seasonally adjusted data, you expect to have a big jump in employment. And if you don't get that big jump, that looks like a negative once you you once you, you think about the seasonal adjustment. So there's a chance that the seasonal adjustment is going to push down the, the jobs number overall. And that's that's a concern that will be misinterpreted when it's it's really not negative. It's it's something that's just a, an anomaly because of the seasonal adjustment. Yeah. So I guess I, my next question might be a little uh, mute at this point. But uh, tomorrow we'll see the November jobs numbers that you just mentioned. What are your predictions? What would the report tell us and what impact might it have on how policymakers respond to the pandemic? Well, I'm not going to give you a number because Gordon Gray at AAF um, uh, has taken over the the truly undesirable job of, of both uh, anticipating everyone's employment report and then uh, interpreting it. But but I think the things to look for. There are more times out of not, I see him being pretty accurate with with what the number looks like. He's he's pretty good at predicting. He's way better than me. So we just <laughs> <laughs> just let me be honest about that. <laughs> but I think the things to look at are things that give you some hint about this this question of what's really going on versus the statistical seasonal adjustment. So go to retail and see what employment does there. If retail um, looks weak, 
then you start to suspect maybe seasonal adjustment, then go to warehouses. Because right now, everything's being done with online and delivery. So if you're going to have a big seasonal hiring boost, it's going to be Amazon and others. And it's going to be in the warehousing data. We, we have data on that. So if you see a weak retail number and a huge uh, warehouse number, you'll know what's going on. That's, that's just seasonal adjustment. If they're both going up, then you just have a strong jobs report. If they're both real weak, then be concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I think this year is the first time ever that I did all of my Christmas shopping on Amazon. Um, usually I go and buy one or two things in, in stores, but this year I was just, I'm not going to even try and deal with any of that. Um, I so just did it all online. You just bought everything for Christmas on Amazon and then deposited your soul or did you use a credit card? <laughs> <laughs> I think credit card is still the currency that they use. But um, so, yeah, that, that is something well, I'll have to watch out for it. Thank you again, Doug, for joining us. Um, I want to, before I let you go, I want to congratulate you again on your Steelers undefeated season. Uh, it was a little uglier last night, but it seemed like you guys are still trending in the right direction. You're being kind. A little uglier is generous. It was a terrible game. Um, Mike Tomlin, the Steelers coach, described it as a pretty good JV scrimmage. That's what he yeah. thought. So, um, you know, I was always W is a W. Mm-hmm. Because I was still working at the time, and uh, then you know, for the last co- for the last quarter, I was making dinner. I didn't get to watch it like as as well as I like to watch it, but it did. There was some points I was like, uh, maybe 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 some practice will do you guys some good. But anyways, thanks again for joining us, and I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.